The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something special. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I think that those kinds of votes of confidence are really important. You know, somebody will look at someone else's career and think, oh, they look like they're doing pretty well and so on. It's not that we all need bells and whistles and prizes, but It is interesting to me to think about how vulnerable we are and how hard it is to really stick to one's ideas about what they want to write and how they want to do it. And I would say my work in many ways, I don't write chick lit. I don't write, you know, a lot of the kinds of things that typically women are expected to write. And so it was very important and powerful for me. And welcome back to The Writer Files. This is your grateful host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. Best-selling award-winning author A.M. Holmes spoke to me about getting sued by J.D. Salinger, the irony of winning the Women's Prize for Fiction, and her latest, The Unfolding. A.M. is a TV producer, art critic, and the author of 13 books, including the best-selling memoir, The Mistress's Daughter. Her last novel, May We Be Forgiven, the winner of the 2013 Women's Prize for Fiction. Her latest novel is The Unfolding, described as a darkly comedic alternative history that takes us into the heart of a fractured family living in a divided country. New York Times bestselling author Salman Rushdie called the book a terrific black comedy written almost entirely in a pitch-perfect dialogue that feels terrifyingly close to the unfunny truth. A.M. was a co-executive producer and writer on David E. Kelly and Stephen King's Mr. Mercedes, and a writer-producer of the Showtime series The L Word. Her work has been translated into 22 languages and appears frequently in Art Forum, Harper's, Granta, McSweeney's, The New Yorker, The New York Times, and Zoetrope. She's a contributing editor to Vanity Fair, Bomb, and Blindspot, and she's taught in the creative writing program at Princeton. In this file, A.M. and I discussed her early struggles with dyslexia, why awards and votes of confidence are so important for writers, how she helped hire Dennis Lehane to write for Mr. Mercedes, her strange obsession with George Washington and her claim to Capitol Hill, how to write your way out of a jam, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates, get links to merch, and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review 
on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. Okay, we are rolling once again on the Writer Files. I am honored today to be joined by a very esteemed guest. I have the award-winning, best-selling author, A.M. Holmes, is joining us today. How are you feeling on this Friday? I'm feeling well, and how are you? And thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm feeling well as well. The cooler weather is kind of arriving here, so that's a, that's a little bit of a relief. It's a huge relief. Are you in New York? I am in New York, and I really don't like heat, nor do I like the urine-scented streets of summer. Hmm. Mm. I do recall those <laughs> urine-scented uh, afternoons. But um, yeah, I can't wait to talk about all things writing and your writing process and the latest, this amazing new novel, The Unfolding, a long time in the making. But um, as we do with so many esteemed and well-known writers, I'd love to uh, talk about your superhero origins a bit. And this incredibly prolific career i believe that you have written 13 books now but the the collections uh and the short stories and all of the other kind of creative projects that you've had your thumbs in are just like truly impressive take us back a little bit because i understand that you not only have worked in television and film quite prolifically but um you know have worked with a handful of contemporary artists and kind of do collaborations that are that's fascinating to me talk a little bit about this really varied and winding career that you've had sure the long and winding road it actually started fairly early um and i started off really writing poems and things and actually was able to study poetry um at american university with some pretty great poets and then from there, I went into playwriting, which had always been something I loved. And I used to go to the theater with my parents all the time. And I think that for me was really where I learned to write, if that makes any sense, and, and about character and line and dialogue. And so I had a play that I wrote uh, when I was 19 in school and sent out all over the country. And it won a playwriting award and also got me nearly sued by J.D. Salinger. So that was my odd beginning and then wow. also while I was in school, exactly, I asked a professor if I could write a novel instead of a paper because I'm very dyslexic and have terrible just learning issues. And the teacher said, what makes you think you could write a, a novel? And I thought, well, I know I can't write a paper. So let's start there. And that was my novel, Jack, which came out, I want to say in 1989. Um, hmm. And so from there, you know, I continued writing. Um and then sort of skipping slightly forward, I do a lot of work with artists. I uh, come from a family where my father is a painter. I studied painting and art. And originally I wrote a lot of art criticism, you know, for magazines and so on. And then I realized that often the piece of criticism would be in, in some ways the only documentation of a show. And so I like to talk about art to artists about how they make what they make, why they make it and what it means to them. And that evolved into a kind of practice of writing fiction that is about the artist's process in some ways and about their work as well, um, which may sound kind of weird, but I've had a wonderful time doing it. And I've had a chance to work with artists like Cecily Brown and Rachel Whiteread and Carol Dunham and just all kinds of people. And I do one or two of those a year usually. Hmm. That's pretty cool. And fascinating. It's fun. Yeah. And, um, of course, your last novel, May We Be Forgiven, um, was published in 2012. And um, 
yeah, that novel won the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2013. Talk a little bit about, about that moment in history for you. And, and you know, I, I recently spoke with um, Nobel laureate Abdul Razak Gurna about kind of the irony of winning a prize of that nature because it's it inevitably means you're not getting as much writing done. I would say the Women's Prize is slightly a lot smaller scale than the Nobel Prize. So, <laughs> okay. so it, didn't, it didn't affect my writing. Um, I think what was interesting about it was that the novel May We Be Forgiven is a novel about two really angry brothers, and one of them kills his wife early in the book. And so the fact that I won the Women's Prize, which is a prize that was created by a bunch of women writers probably quite a few years ago, probably more than 20 years ago now, um, because they felt that women's writing wasn't recognized enough in the academy. There weren't women winning uh, the Booker and so on. So that my novel that in a way was um, dangerous <laughs> towards women won that prize was an incredible vote of confidence because it really meant that they were giving me the award for the writing, for my work. Um, and so it meant an enormous amount to me. It also had been founded by one of my early teachers, the writer Angela Carter, who is no longer alive. So I think that those kinds of votes of confidence are really important. You know, somebody will look at someone else's career and think, oh, they look like they're doing pretty well and so on. It's not that we all need bells and whistles and prizes, but it is interesting to me to think about how vulnerable we are and how hard it is to really stick to one's ideas about what they want to write and how they want to do it. And I would say my work in many ways, I don't write chick lit. I don't write, you know, a lot of the kinds of things that typically women are expected to write. And so it was very important and powerful for me. Yeah. Well, since then you've worked on some television and, uh, you know, you've been, you've been an executive producer. Uh, you worked on Stephen King's Mr. Mercedes series, I believe with, uh, David E. Kelly and, um, another guest actually who was recently on this show. I'm why I'm not, I'm blanking his name, but also wrote for that show. I wondered actually if the two of you had rubbed elbows. Did you have Dennis Lehane on? I had Dennis Lehane on the show. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I was thinking of another author altogether. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dennis Lehane was on, and um, he he had some really great things. To, he said he had learned his chops actually on that series. Um, so I wonder if if the two of you got to to hang out and rub elbows a little bit. That's so funny. We got to hang out a little bit. It's it's funny because there was I was hired to write on the show and another guy, and then the first day we got to work, David Kelly said, you know, there's this other writer who's interested in writing on the show, and the other guy whose name I won't mention. It's like, we don't need anybody else. And I said, well, who is it? And they said, David said, it's Dennis Lehane. And I said, hire him. And then <laughs> Dennis, you know, and then, and then David was like, really? And I was like, absolutely. I said, we're not going to start working until Dennis gets here. Because I, I admire Dennis's work a lot. I think he's a really, really good writer. I thought it would be fun in a way. He's kind of a cowboy in a, you know, in a kind of cool way. And so literally we didn't start work for like a week until like Dennis could get hired and all that stuff. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, I think I've done all kinds of TV work, but taking Stephen King's work and sort of bringing it, you know, not to life because it's entirely alive already, but bringing it to, to the screen and unpacking those characters in a way because King is always writing so fast and furiously that in a way the characters are very compressed. And so we had a chance to really kind of let the kite string out and I just loved it. And David Kelly is like amazing. Dennis is wonderful. 
Hmm. Um, you know, it was a fun, wild ride. I just did the first season of that show, but it was really fun. Amazing, amazing. And of course, you've written extensively for uh, Zoe Trope and probably hung out with its founder, I'm guessing, uh, famous um, American director of The Godfather. Francis. I have not written a lot for Zoetrope. Oh, okay. Francis, but okay. <laughs> I have I have hung out quite a bit with his daughter Sophia, um, okay. and did have occasion to talk with Francis. Uh, yeah, but I'm not sure if that I can I can talk to you a little bit about that, but I'm not sure. No, I was just taking I was taking a wild one there, and that's cool that yeah. you get to hang out with <laughs> Sophia because, of course, yeah. she is an incredibly talented uh, artist and director and writer, and one of my favorite films is. Uh, the one that she did with Bill Murray, uh, Lost in Translation. Lost in Translation, yeah. yeah. And Virgin Suicides was so good, yeah. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Are you currently working on any adaptations? Um, I know that Hollywood courts you probably quite often about your work. Not often enough. Do you have anything cooking? There's always things cooking. And I'm, I'm, um, I would say I've been really working to finish the unfolding and sort of get that book out. And so I didn't sort of do a, a go round this uh, pitching season. So I sort of stepped out of that a little bit. Um, you know, it's a balancing act for me between sometimes people wanting me to adapt my own work for TV and then also looking at other media and things that are available. The TV industry right now really likes what we call underlying IP, intellectual property. Mm -hmm. And so they um, are always looking at sort of novels and things to adapt. So I'm, I've got a bunch of things sort of back burner, including one I can't talk about yet that I'm super excited about that I hope happens, but I don't know if it's going to happen which is yeah. the world of television. Sure. Well, that's cool that, you still, that you're still um, working on that side of it and can't wait to hear more about that as those things unfold. But yeah, speaking of unfolding, The Unfolding, um, your latest uh, is described as a state-of-the-nation novel about American identity and the growing chasm 
where words like truth and democracy mean different things to different people, sometimes all under the same roof. Let's talk about the unfolding and the amazing reception so far. I know you've mentioned that you've seen some negative reviews. I haven't myself personally, but I've seen this glut of uh, blurbs and incredible, and the New York Times called it a sharply observed, wickedly funny political satire by the reliably brilliant A.M. Holmes. That's got to feel pretty good. You, you are reliably brilliant. Uh, if only that were, if only that were really true. I mean, you know, it takes a long time to write a book. And so hopefully by the time you get it done and edited, then it is reliably brilliant or just can stand up for itself. It it certainly has been nice to get a good response. And, you know, it really is hair raising to publish a book and especially to publish a book that is political, that is in some ways, um, slightly confrontational in terms of who we are and where we're going. Um, but it's exciting too. And I like having the conversation about it. That's really in a way what I'm here for is to write things that provoke us to talk about the world we live in. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, it's provocative in a, I think in a productive way, um, as many of your peers have noted, Salman Rushdie, who's been a fan of your work for forever. I'm sure that you've gotten to hang out with him. Um, a terrific black comedy written almost entirely in pitch perfect dialogue that feels terrifyingly close to the only funny truth. And uh, of course, we hope that Salman is is uh, recovering. Um, did you get to participate in any of the kind of this, the um, events that were happening kind of after he was uh, attacked? Yeah, I did a event at the New York Public Library with a whole bunch of writers uh, under the auspices of Penn. And when Salman was the president of Penn, I was the vice president. And I think it's really interesting to think about the importance of free speech. And someone was asking me the other day, like, well, you know, what if free speech is, is you know, calling for violence, like January 6th and, and so on? I think it's a difficult question, but we absolutely have to protect people's right to say things. And we also have to work to build a society where our words are not met with violence, where we can have conversation and where we can disagree, but we can respect each other's, you know, physical boundaries, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it does, of course, dovetail into the kind of the seeds of um, the unfolding. And I I found one in particular uh, factoid about kind of some of the underlying research you had done or things that had come across your desk about the legacy of your own family. And of course, Capitol Hill. Do you want to talk a little bit about that strange uh, thing that happened to you or this this fact that you learned? Yeah. I, you know, (laughs) I always think, I mean, I think of myself as really a fiction writer and there's always been somehow or another, uh, sometimes a kind of prescience to my work. So, you know, I wrote music for torching and literally it ends with a shooting at a school and funny enough, publication day was the day that Columbine happened. And now I've written the unfolding and it's got sort of, you know, a political provocation And then, you know, January 6th happened and so on. So there's a piece of all these things that I think, okay, you know, how do you know what you know? And I do believe that on a cellular level, we also know certain things. So there I am finishing the unfolding. And I knew, you know, I grew up adopted. I wrote a whole book about being found by my biological family called The Mistress's Daughter. And because I am somewhat of a public figure, every now and then people, you know, will find me in email or in different ways. And so somebody who's related to me happened to write to me and was, sharing some information about the family. And I knew always that my family had been in Washington and I knew that they were somehow landowners. 
And then the information she shared with me allowed me to kind of go back and dig up more stuff. And long story short, back in 1638, it turned out that my ancestor owned with another guy an enormous amount of land in Washington, D.C., and in fact, all of the land that is now Capitol Hill, which for me raises questions like, well, who did they get it from? Who, who, who did it belong to before that? And then by 1640, this fellow had sold all of his share of it to the other guy. But the <laughs> fact that this book has so much to do with, in a way, even though it's not all set on Capitol Hill, there is a very pivotal scene that takes place there, mm. um, just is wild to me because I think I'm writing about the privilege and the assumptions that people make and the way some people feel they have entree into all things. And I'm very mindful in a way of my, for lack of a word, illegitimacy and the fact that I always feel like an outsider and so on. And then I come upon this piece of information that this land is actually, you know, sort of at the root of my heritage in this country. It was, you know, one of the first things that these people acquired when they came from England. Yeah. Um, the other thread, which you may not know, is in the unfolding, the big guy and his daughter, who you could replace in some ways for my biological father and me, the you know adopted illegitimate child, um, are both obsessed with George Washington. And the other weird piece of information that I came across was that my biological relatives, two of them, sequentially one and then her sister, were married to George Washington's great-grandfather. And I'm like, hmm. how is that possible? Um, so it's just weird, you know, but I love that. I love the fact that, that one can be compelled towards their own history, not even knowing what their history is. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So it, it's kind of almost kind of like an intergenerational, as you've talked about a little bit, like a, this seismic thing that you feel as a human being that compels you perhaps, um, in some of your, some of your fiction. Yeah. And also that weird sense of questions that are not answered in the way in which we all, you know, as we go through our lives, I think we're constantly exploring and sort of trying to see what are those questions and how do I know more? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, obviously, um, quite a bit of thought and love went into this latest novel and, um, congrats on the work. It is a really, really compelling piece, but you know, t you have talked kind of about delving into the, the dark side and kind of uncovering the darker parts of the human psyche. And, and obviously this book <laughs> delves into some of what, you know, we're seeing as you put it, you're really prescient, um, for this time in history but um, I want to talk about kind of your writing day uh, as we as we dovetail into the, the subject matter. Like, how is how what like what's the most prolific period look like for you when you're in the in the throes of 
um, a novel, uh, like what's your best writing day kind of look and smell sure. like? Are you getting out of the crack of dawn? Are you a nighttime writer? I know you've got a lot going on if you're teaching and you're working on TV pro, you know, projects. Like, how do you get pages? Exactly. So I, I am peculiarly busy and I do a lot of volunteer work and sit on a lot of boards and so on and so forth. A good writing day for me is a day with nothing else in it, thing one, right? So trying to force myself to keep my calendar empty. And you look at an empty day and you go, oh, it's open. I can go to the dentist. I'm like, please do not go to the dentist. <laughs> um, you will get nothing done. Just live with that painful crown for a while longer. Um, so a good writing day is really, not only is it a day that's empty, it's a day where the day before it was also probably not too intense because otherwise then I'm tired the next day. I do get up early. I am, I am, despite my funny initials, AM, I am a morning person. <laughs> An ideal day for me is one where I'm not interrupted, where, where nobody calls at six o'clock in the morning to tell me something bad, uh, you know, where, where nothing's, nothing happens to distract me. I like to, I like to be in my head and I like to live with these characters. And then I would say if, if I can get to work at, you know, six or seven o'clock in the morning and work for a few hours and then, you know, eat something. I try not to eat right away either. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to be like brought down by, you know, whatever that the need to digest. So I'd like to work for a few hours. And then I would say a, a really good writing day has for me, what I would describe as almost like three sessions of writing where you write for a while and then, you know, either take a rest, take a break, go for a walk, do something. And then you write for a while again. And then at a certain point, usually I like to print out what I've written. I do a lot of revising by hand. So I'll sort of write on the computer. And then if I get stuck, the truth is I write my way out of being stuck by hand. So I'll work on, you know, unlined pages of paper and just make notes and so on. Um, and I really do enjoy writing. I really enjoy when my characters come to life and they kind of are directing things. Um, and I'm just sort of like, I mean, people say this, but, you know, almost like taking dictation. But then I also will have, you know, I provoke them too. And I'm like, well, what are you really doing here? Well, what's like, what's in it for you? You know, and I, I sort of ask questions of them, which then I think push things a little bit further. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I like I, I could pick your brain all day, but I'm kind of curious about your thoughts about, um, you know, the state of uh, democracy <laughs> right now. But that would be a very long answer. I kind of thought of like this, this, character guy refit who's a real who is i think sentenced to the, the longest um you know amount of prison time for the for the january 6th insurrection uh because they said that he had kind of like struck the match that that or lit the match that that inspired this crowd to like take a you know to actually uh trespass and and threaten the lives of people but um yeah i don't i don't know why i thought of guy refit but talk a little bit about how you're feeling now. I know because it, it's got to, and, and you have mentioned that you were happy that the book wasn't published prior to January 6th, given its prescience. Yeah. I mean, originally I really wanted it to come out before the last presidential election. And then I wasn't done and publishing takes a year. And then when January 6th happened, I thought, well, that's a relief because it could be seen as though I <laughs> wanted that to happen in some ways. Right. Um, I think, you know, when I look at where we are now, I would say, it's really interesting and really scary because we are at a time when I would like to say officially words like democracy or truth 
don't mean the same thing to people. And if we can't agree upon even what the rules are, or we can't agree on having free and fair voting, um, we are at a very perilous moment. And so it worries me. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out sort of, is there a way back from that and a way in which people can agree? We don't all have to view our hopes and dreams for America the same way. We don't all have to want the same things. But if you want to live in a democracy, you have to participate in the democratic process, you know, by using the following rules. So I think we're really actually at, a, at an incredibly pivotal moment. And it's on the one hand, I would say, oh, it's a great time to write fiction about it. On the other hand, it's so perilous right now that I, I feel like I, I, I'm compelled to just stand witness and watch the whole thing, um, which maybe is not the best use of my time either. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, it truly is a, a pretty fascinating time in history. Um, uh, yeah, and it will be super interesting to look back 10, 20 years from now <laughs> to see how we got through it in one piece, if we do. I was going to say, knock wood, we have the chance to do that. Oh, gosh, knocking yeah. a lot of wood over here. Um, well, we appreciate your words, your wisdom. Of course, I'm going to point at your home base there, uh, amhomesbooks.com. You're on the socials. The unfolding is out now. Uh, it's it's brilliant. Congrats. And um, yeah, I'd love to ask you a fun one. If you could have dinner with any author from any era uh, to your favorite spot in the world, who would you take and where would you take them? You know, I, at the moment, I might like to have dinner with Henry Miller. <laughs> hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I could use his laugh. Do you remember? He had this incredible laugh. I love the way that he wrote about the world um, and sort of men and women and sex and stuff. So I know, again, he's a sort of people like Henry Miller, um, but I think that would be fun. Uh, you know, yeah. I would love to actually have dinner with Jack Kerouac, but I think we could go into, Jack and I would go down some really deep, dark rabbit hole and then we'd just be sad at the end. Um, <laughs> you know, so at the moment, I think I, I need a little bit of an uplift. Um, Okay. Yeah, Joan Didion, who I loved, I'd love to have dinner with, but it's she was she was pretty quiet at times. All right, where would you take? You could bring them all. Where would you take them? And you know, you could you could sequester Jack in like a back booth. And- you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna invite them all to like a, a restaurant, maybe somewhere near like San Francisco or something, just because I think uh, Henry Miller's up there. Joan Didion is certainly a California person. Jack is traveling, so he could get there. Um, and I think I'd like to throw Patty Smith in just because. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we'll go to the Post Ranch Inn, which is a very fancy hotel right on the coast there, right by uh, Henry Miller's house. I once went there. Really, all of Monty Python seemed to be there, which is very <laughs> strange. Um, but the food That's is good. good. And I think it's a nice place to ha- sit and have a good conversation. And I'd yeah, like you yeah. to come too, if you don't mind. Oh, I would love to be a fly on the wall. Thank you very much. Well, I'm a, I also have to pay the check. So. Um, exactly. you'd <laughs> I didn't my, want to break that to you right now, but uh, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> Henry has Henry, Henry and Jack have no money, and Joan is not going to be like want to take these guys out. <laughs> um, your final pearl of wisdom for writers: just keep writing, 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 and you know, if you're going to give up, you're going to give up. So just don't bother giving up. Just do it. Commit. I love that. Commit. Uh, thank you so much, Am. It has been truly a pleasure. Come back again, and we wish you the best of luck on your. Uh, endeavors. Thank you. I would love to. And just thank you. It was lovely to talk with you. Of course. Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, 
Simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm. Hey, I'm going to let you go to your next thing, but I really am a big fan. I studied you in uh, creative writing school like 20 years ago. So (laughs) fantastic. Well, hopefully we'll have a chance to talk more sometime. I would really like that. I really hope so. Take care, Am. All right. You bet. Bye. Okay.